Going Linux, episode 369, Listener Feedback. Welcome to the Going Linux podcast. I'm your host, Larry Bushy. And I'm your co-host, Bill. Whether you're new to Linux, upgrading from Windows to Linux, or just thinking about moving to Linux, this podcast will provide you valuable information and advice that will help you in Going Linux. We hope that you'll find this and all of our episodes helpful in learning about Linux and open source applications and using them to get things done. If you want, you can send us feedback at our email address at goinglinux at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 1-904-468-7889. Today's episode is Listener Feedback. Hello, Bill. Hello, Larry. How are you today? I am doing great. I hear that we owe a shout out to the great folks at Transworld, the technicians who have helped you with your internet problems over the yeah. time that you've yes, been there in great guys. Mexico. Yeah. So let's see. There's Jeff, Craig, Ben, and Mike, at least one of whom are listeners to the show. So shout out to you guys. And, uh, if you have any feedback for us directly, please feel free to send it in. Yeah, thanks, guys. You really bailed me out. They they worked really hard to get me back up and running, so I was really, really um, happy they do the, the network engineering, and they work hard. So, yeah, thanks, guys. Yeah, sounds like they're much more responsive than the cable company who shall not remain nameless, uh, you know, <laughs> spectrum here in California that doesn't quite give that level of service. But uh, anyway. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, Larry, uh, we haven't recorded a show in a while and I have to um, let you know, I, I've, uh, I think I've found the most perfect Linux ever and I've been running it for Oh, about three, three and a half weeks, maybe. Wow, and, that's a long uh, time for you, Bill. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, I, I can't find anything wrong with it. I mean, it has, it does everything almost perfectly. And uh, we'll talk about that uh, maybe on a future show. But uh, I want to give a shout out to Door from Door Door Geek because uh, he kind of turned me on to it and uh, told me to give it a second look because I'd heard about it. And I wasn't going to install it, but after he says, "Hey, you need to look into it and read about it," and and so I installed it, and oh, it's just um, it's just been really smooth and beautiful. You've told us about it, but you haven't told us what it is. What is it? Well, I took the plunged in the deep end and with deep in Linux. It's D E P I N, uh, and uh, yeah, a little play on words there. Two E's, right? D E E P I N. Okay. Yeah. So I jumped into deep end with deep end. So hey, okay. okay. It's my play on it's, words. What do you want? And and you didn't drown, so you're you're good. <laughs> yeah, it, it's really been flawless. I'm actually recording on it. Uh, it's based on Debian stable, and uh, it's really really a good uh, distro. I've been very impressed and very pleased with it. Yeah, maybe and, we can do a mini review of Deepin. Yeah, maybe uh, one of the uh, other shows we can give a quick little review of it. Other thing I found is, you know, someone was saying that they kind of missed um, uh, 
like classic Minecraft. So yeah. I actually found one, and it's called Mind Test. <laughs> it's, it's a okay. Minecraft clone. Okay, and it's a native Linux game, or is it a Steam game? It, yeah, or? it's it's yeah. You can get it out of the repos. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah, and Mind Test. I thought that was kind of funny, but uh, yeah, it's not Minecraft. It's Mind Test. So if you go to your repos and, and type in Mind Test, it's a it's a I mean a straight up Minecraft clone. It runs really well, so yeah, give it a uh, give it a whirl. I think you'll be pretty pleased with it. I know I was like, "Wow, this thing looks um, just like Minecraft." <laughs> so anyway, okay. I'm easy okay. to entertain. <laughs> well, you've got the computing hardware for it, so that's good. Not that Minecraft or Mindtest is very stressful on your computing hardware, I would imagine. No, what you're afraid those blocks are going to slow your <laughs> <laughs> no, it should run fine on just about everything. It seems pretty light, so yeah. yeah give it, if you're looking for uh, a a well done uh, Minecraft clone that mm-hmm. you can get out of your repos, try Mine Test. Okay, we'll add that into the show notes. Yes, I already did. Okay. Oh, you did already. Okay. Yeah. I, See. Okay. I'm ahead of the that. game today. Uh. Okay, so shall we get into our email? We have quite a, f- a few emails this time, and some of them pretty long. Okay, let's jump into them. Okay, our first one is from NZ17, who wrote an update, how Helios got his voice back. Aloha from Utah. I am writing to let you know what happened with Ken Helios Starks. To remind everyone, Helios is not just a Linux enthusiast. He also is a giving guy who refurbishes computers and their parts to rebuild them into Linux machines for poor families. His organization, Reglu, finds those underprivileged families in Texas who require a free technological boost and a bit of training in the ways of Linux to get back to even ground with the rest of society. Recently, Helios... Uh, electrolarynx broke. Being unable to pay for a replacement with government health care, his friends turned to open source community to ask for help. I'm happy to report that thanks to the generosity of the free Libra open source community, Helios is talking again. Their GoFundMe campaign was successful, and the new electrolarynx arrived at his place. Helios and his family are all very grateful for everyone who contributed to giving him his voice back. Occasionally, those that give also receive. Thanks to all of the viewers and listeners that contributed, and thanks, gentlemen of Linux, for sharing the word about Reglu's work and the campaign for a new electrolarynx. Pedantic Minion number 1, NZ17, Vernal, Utah. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm sure that is really going to be life-changing. I mean, can you imagine not being able to say anything? Oh, no. Oh, yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm glad that it, that we were able, as a community, to help him. Our next one comes from Highlander, who wrote us about bypassing a GUI update blockage in Fedora 29. The ability to get updates through the graphical user interface seems to have ended for Fedora 29 users. I don't know when that ability will return. I looked up the error message, no Klaus, 
uh, support, and I found this. And then the link is in the show notes. It's to their um, looks like a question and answer section. And it says, I ran the sudo dnf update command in my terminal while I logged in as administrator. I entered in my password and updates were completed. The update process can take up to an hour regardless of how fast your internet connection is. After the update finished, there was a noticeable difference in Firefox. Firefox version 60.0.2 is shipped with the title bar turned off for Fedora 29 users. Without the title bar, users cannot minimize Firefox into the background. Just right-click on the menu bar uh, and then uh, left-click on Customize in the lower left of the screen and you will see the title bar with a checkbox beside it. Left-click on the uh, checkbox and your ability to minimize Firefox in the background will be restored. I wonder what caused this loss of Klaus uh, support. I am still uh, waiting for the answer. Regards, Highlander. That makes no sense. It makes no sense that they would have turned that off. I'm sure they yeah. didn't do that uh, intentionally at Fedora. Uh, obviously a bug. So, yeah, I'm I'm hoping that it's been fixed by now. Um, it wasn't that long ago that Highlander sent this in. So uh, maybe as long ago as a mm, couple of weeks, three weeks, I, I'm guessing. Um, maybe more recently than that. So, um uh. Keep us updated, Highlander, if, especially for those listeners of ours who are using Fedora 29. I'm sure they've bumped their heads against this one uh, or wondering why they're not getting updates. Well, I wonder if it's because Fedora 30 was released, uh, but I'm surely they wouldn't uh, stop immediately no. uh, Fedora 29. So, yeah, yeah it I must have been a bug. Yeah, hopefully they've got it fixed in Fedora 30. Yeah, that's kind of weird. Yeah. Okay, well, um, good luck. Keep us up to date, Highlander. Thanks. Our next email is from Hamilcar. And he or she wrote us with a follow-up to Listener Feedback 359, December 20th, 2018. Hmm, okay. Uh, Hello, Larry and Bill. After experimenting with Ubuntu, Mint, and Manjaro, I decided on Mate. I picked up Athelio Major from System76. Now... The crux of the change from Windows, in my experience. Number one, learning the basis of Linux. I used GRUR99 tutorials on YouTube. Of course, we'll have a link in the show notes. Monthly publications, Linux Magazine and Linux Format. Purchasing using Ubuntu Mate and its applications. And the recommended, the Linux command line. Those were a big help. Number two, ease of use. For other users to migrate. Number three, a challenging transition was application choice. For example, EM client versus Thunderbird, Notepad versus GNote, etc. The most difficult transition was of files and folders. After 10 years, it was needed to consolidate, remove, and just plainly redo folders and clean up old crud. Once again, thanks to you guys for a wonderful endeavor and your advice. I did contribute to Thunderbird, Ubuntu Mate, and others. The podcast, Linux for the Rest of Us, was lax in noting which show had a valid point in which 
we must donate and or pay for software to help the developers of Linux to survive. Okay, so that Linux for the rest of us is Dora's podcast, right? Yes. So, Dora, if you can give us the episode where you noted the valid points on donating and or paying for software, that would be great. We'll include a mention of that in a future episode once we get that. Yeah. So our next email comes from Stephen, who emailed about Discord and OpenSUSE. Uh, Hi, Larry and Bill. I enjoyed listening to the podcast episodes. Thanks for the effort you guys put into publishing the show. I'm relatively new to uh, to GNU Linux about a year or so, mainly based on Windows 10 updates being intrusive and rendering a Windows 7 machine useless. I didn't do a whole lot of distro hopping, basically because a software I wanted to run was only officially supported on SUSE or Red Hat. I muddled my way through the OpenSUSE install with GNOME uh, desktop. Initially, I was wondering, now what? As it was just a simple screen and nothing resembling the Windows dock area, and minimized Windows went to limbo somewhere, but I eventually figured out that GNOME tweaks and got an application menu and places dock at the top and minimized Windows to show at the bottom. But now that I'm used to it, I find I'm just hitting the super key and typing the first three or so letters to bring up the application I want to, to use. Bill, as you found, it took me a while to get comfortable with all the different places to alter settings and such, but after running OpenSUSE Leap 42.3 for a while, and now Leap 15.0, I am loving the working environment. Anyway, you mentioned Discord and Wine Tricks. From fiddling, I found three places to get software. Number one, obviously finding and adding extra repositories besides the main OpenSUSE uh, repository. Uh, number two, the built-in software app store that takes uh, that sometimes takes a while to populate properly. And number three, the OpenSUSE software web search site, which has a handy one-click install feature when you find the piece of software you want. I'm not sure which version of OpenSUSE you tried, 42.3, or the newer 15.0 or the rolling tumbleweed release. However, in Leap 15.0, if you are subscribed to the OpenSUSE update repository, the non-OSS or non-open source, Discord is available at version 0.9, which seems to be current. I'm not, that was a question. I'm not sure about that. I have to look at what I'm running now. Um, I don't use it, so I'm not sure what version would be the most current see screen shots attached. If you need to find software and have trouble finding it in your subscriber repositories, other than adding other repositories, you can search at the OpenSUSE software site. They they then have a one-click install button. Try this link. You can search for other packages in the top bar and can set it if you only want official releases or experimental or community packages. Looks like Winetrix is an official for OpenSUSE Tumbleweed, but experimental for 42.3 and 15.0 uh, releases, and it includes the the link to it. 
Uh, then he says, sounds like you have moved on anyway. <laughs> yeah, he knows me too well. But if you ever come back to it and have any questions, I'd be happy to pass on any tips I've learned in this past year. I'm not the most experienced Linux user, but I've had to solve my own issues in getting OpenSUSE set up in on five pieces of hardware. Cheers, guys. Steven. Thank you for the offer, Steven. Uh, if I ever go back to OpenSUSE uh, and have problems, I will definitely uh, be emailing you with some questions. Yeah, and I haven't used OpenSUSE in a long, long time. So <laughs> yeah. my experience was back in the, the uh, GNOME 2 uh, Ooh, days. Yeah. So yeah, it's been a while. Um, so OpenSUSE just doesn't work for me. <laughs> uh, I guess it, it does things differently. I'm not saying it's a bad distribution. It's just I've been running uh, Debian base so long and it just I've gotten used to it. I don't know. Like I said, nothing wrong with it. But if I ever do uh, check it out, I will definitely uh, pick Steven's brain. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, OpenSUSE is one of those that I want to like, but it always when I do try it out, uh, it always seems like a distribution that is built for servers, and they offer a desktop version just so that their employees have something to use on the desktop. Uh, yeah. I don't know. It's 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 good, and it's complete, but it's not as user-friendly as something like Ubuntu or yeah, some of the Yeah, I think that's that it. I, I want to like it, but it always makes me mad <laughs> for some reason. Yeah, there's always like, something funky about it, yeah. Yeah, you, you know, I the Yast uh, package manager, you know, is, I don't know, I can't get my head around it for some reason, but that's probably just because I, I, I'm so used to using like Synaptic or stuff like that. So anyway. Yeah, um, yeah. Maybe one day different. I'll look at it again. <laughs> yep. Well, our next email is from James, who has a question about config file syntax. Hello, Larry and Bill. Hoping you're both well. I have been poking around in the speechd.conf file to change an Orca-related setting and noticed that each line began with a hash or number symbol. After changing the setting, I removed the hash symbol, believing that it was akin to a comment symbol in programming languages such as Python. That is, any line preceded by a hash symbol will be ignored by the Python interpreter. I returned to the file a little later and found that the hash symbol had returned. Since hmm. then, I have wanted to know what the purpose of the hash symbol in this file is, if not to comment out lines. Unfortunately, I am getting nowhere fast, other than discovering that there seems to be no agreed formula for writing a config file in Linux. I am guessing that there are some loose rules, otherwise, how would programs respond to their configuration files? Anyway, would yourself or Bill happen to know what the purpose of the hash symbol is in config files? If this is not used to comment lines, please. Thank you, and keep up the great work. I love the show, my favorite Linux podcast. Well, thanks, James. And in most configuration files I have seen, the hash symbol is used to comment outlines. And what I have noticed with Orca is they do their own thing. So maybe they've got their own convention around configuration files that doesn't align with other configuration files or other programs in Linux. And I'm 
not surprised that it varies from application to application and simply because I don't think there is a standard. I think it's a loosely adopted um, best practice rather than a you must build configuration files this way. But I'm not a programmer. I may be wrong there. So I would ask two things of our audience. If you are an Orca user and have messed around in the configuration files, or even if you're not an Orca user and you're helping with the distribution, um, let us know what that hash symbol means and why it came back. I'm assuming there's some master copy of a config file that overwrites anything that a user might mess up. Uh, and the second thing is, do you know, is there a standard for configuration files for Linux? Uh, I was just sitting here thinking, I thought the hash was, uh, basically just for comments, you know, you know, changes yeah. setting or, you know, notes. Cause a lot of programmers, uh, that I've, you know, programs I've seen or configuration files, they'll have the, the, uh, the hash or number symbol, whatever you want to call it, and it usually has, you know, comments that the program just ignores. So I have no clue about that. Yeah, so James mentions that it is a comment indicator in Python and in bash scripts, shell scripts, huh. it's a comment. And several other of the configuration files I've seen, it's used for comments. So huh, seems to be kind of a convention, if not a formal convention. Anyway, we'll yeah, we'll ask the minions know. and see if anybody smarter than us knows the answer. Well, I'm sure that if anybody knows our minions would. Um, yeah, that 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 kind of bizarre. I have to think about that one. Um, I might have to go look through the work Orca man pages and see if it, it says anything about that. You never mm -hmm. know. So our next email comes from Albert, and he says that he's fairly new to the show. Well, welcome, Albert. But anyway, he writes, good morning. I love the show. I have been listening to the show for the past few months along with other Linux shows. I just installed Pop OS on my ThinkPad X220 Core i5 with 8 gigabytes of DDR3 RAM and a 250 gigabyte Samsung EVO SSD and a brand new 9 cell battery. It runs smoother than elementary OS. My question is I need a new printer but I don't print every day. I have an Epson Inkjet like 430 series, but it seems like the cartridge clogs up all the time. One of my friends told me to get a cheap laser printer since I might print two or three times a month. I don't need color. Is there any good options out there for Linux? I was just looking at, at an HP LaserJet Pro uh, M29W at Walmart for 110 bucks, but don't know. Uh, what printers play nice with Linux? Keep up the great work on the show. Thank you. West Fargo, North Dakota, Albert. Hmm. Um, Larry. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah. ThinkPad's a nice computer, and Pop! OS is, from all reports I've heard, a nice uh, version of Linux to install on there. Sounds like it's working just fine for you. So from a printer perspective, I've had Epson printers. I've had Samsung printers. I've had HP printers. I've had some others that I don't remember the name of because they weren't really good. Um, Epson, I did notice their inkjet 
their inkjet printers do have a tendency to clog up more often than the others that I've had. My And I've said this before, but my best experience has always been with HP printers, whether it's their laser jet printers or their uh, inkjet printers, either one. Uh, and yes, if you're not using the printer a lot, uh, it will clog up the cartridges, the ink cartridges. So uh, they they tend to just dry up a little bit. So laser jet might just be the the ticket for you. And if all you need is monochrome printing, black and white printing, um, the laser jet printers are relatively inexpensive. Uh, $110 seems about right for the uh, HP low-end multifunction printer that the M29W is. Uh, if you need the extra functions, that's great. You know, if you need the scanning and I don't know whether that one has fax built in or not, or if you, if you even use fax. So you might want to consider just a laser jet printer without all the multifunction stuff if you don't need it. But if not, that HP is probably just fine. Uh, we'll include a link in the show notes to the hardware reference guide, uh, Linux compatibility hardware reference. And that should give you uh, some idea before you go out and purchase a, a printer, which uh, of the printers that are available to you in Walmart or any other store you want to go to is compatible with Linux. So just bring that link along with you on your phone to the store you're going to and look up the uh, model that they have there on the shelf and see if it's Linux compatible. They'll give some ratings there, things from uh, works perfectly to most functions work to this is a paperweight. Uh, and uh, you, you'll be able to tell from there whether or not it's Linux compatible and uh, how Linux compatible it actually is. Yeah, well, right. I, I had a printer. I can't remember what it was. It wasn't HP because I have an HP Office Jet uh, 3830 that works. But I remember when I switched to Linux, it basically was a good doorstop. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think it was a br old brother. I think it was. Yes, brother is one of those that has troubles with Linux, or <laughs> Linux has troubles with it. Whatever. Um, and you know, uh, if you do get an HP, and even if you don't get an HP, there's a utility usually in the repositories of most, if not all, Linux versions, and it's called HPLIP Toolbox. And if you install that, that gives you a little utility that lets you manage the functions of your HP printer and or fax machine and or scanner and monitors things like ink level or toner cartridge level, things like that. It's just got a bunch of utilities in there that just make it easier to manage your printer and, and clean out the print heads if you need to and things like that. So um, that's specifically written by HP for the Linux community, and it's a, it's an excellent tool, and I've used it with just about every brand of printer out there. It's not just HP that it works with. Hmm. Okay. There you go. Okay, so Troy wrote us about episode 365. Hi, guys. Happy Easter, happy spring, and all that jazz. In episode 365, one of your users was looking for recommendations on laptops for taking on the road. For what sounds like more than graphically intensive or processor-intensive applications, for example, Adobe, gaming, etc. First of all, 
I would not recommend those hybrid computers that are primarily tablets with a keyboard that attaches to it. For example, Microsoft Surface, etc. They are simply expensive toys with not enough storage. If you break them, you don't get them fixed. You buy a new one. They are worthless in my opinion. Manufacturers are trying to make a computer that is a notebook and a tablet at the same time, but do neither job well. The screens are very small. The solid-state drives are very small. They have a fixed amount of memory, and you don't upgrade them. If you drop one and break it, just kiss it goodbye. It will cost almost as much to fix it as it will be to buy a new one. They don't make good tablets and are less efficient to navigate and actually get anything done in them in tablet mode. If you want a notebook, get a notebook. Windows, Linux, whatever. If you want a tablet, get a tablet. iPad, Android, whatever. If you want to do different tasks in each mode, then get one of each. If you want to do quick and simple tasks on a tablet, I recommend Samsung Galaxy tablets over just about anything. For real computing, if you want to spend some bucks, you could look at System76 that comes with Ubuntu or Pop! OS pre-installed. If you plan on dual booting, you may have to wipe it, install Windows first, and then install the original OS afterwards. If you want to buy off-the-shelf, I personally recommend getting a nicer, higher-end model Dell Inspiron. Get something with at least an Intel i5 quad-core processor or an i7 and 16 gigabytes of memory. Either get a 500 gigabyte SSD drive or a 256-500 gigabyte EMMC drive for the operating system with a one terabyte or higher SATA drive for data. Unless you absolutely need to dual boot your computer due to system requirements of certain programs or because the particular games you run have specific hardware requirements, for example, graphics card, 3D, etc., and cannot effectively interface with your graphics hardware directly, I would suggest installing Linux Mint on the computer directly and run Windows in a VirtualBox virtual machine instead. Just make sure you have 16 to 32 gigabytes of memory in the computer so the virtual machine runs more efficiently, especially if you're running certain games in it. Side note, keep in mind if you buy System76, you would then need to purchase a separate license for Windows 10 separately from the cost of the computer. If you go with Dell or other brand, they will come with a license for Windows 10, just my two cents worth, Troy, a.k.a. Jack Death. Well, thanks so much, Troy. Uh, great recommendations. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, we appreciate your opinion. That That's pretty, uh, that's pretty good advice. Uh yeah, it was um I mine uh, I, I doesn't doesn't yours also have like a SSD for the uh and then a a, a larger uh, uh SATA drive or what sometimes they call them rust drives the old the old um uh spinning platters for the programs or do, is Yeah, yours I all... had that I had that configuration in my system 76 Galago or Galago Pro uh-huh. uh one of the older ones um but now that I'm on the Dell XPS 13, it's a solid state drive. Uh, it's oh. it's actually a drive on a card as opposed to a hard drive sort of thing. But um, yeah, I have a, an external hard drive that I keep stuff on uh, when I'm sitting here at my desk. But for carrying this thing around, I've got 
plenty of storage on on this thing. I think I put 500 gigabyte uh, of storage on it, if I remember correctly. And uh, yeah, it, it works really well for me. Okay. Uh, George from uh, Tulsa commented on episode 368, Back to Basics. You're right. Ubuntu Bungie. Although I prefer Cinnamon, I'm running Ubuntu um, Bungie uh, 19.04 on my Hades Canyon NUC. The Hades Canyon has the Kirby Lake G with hybrid Intel i7 and AMD Vega graphics. Linux didn't work on it at all until kernel 4.18 plus and the updated uh, MESA drivers from Martin Winpress had included in the 18.10 Ubuntu releases. Bungie works very well and is mostly elegant. The change of the file manager from Nautilus to Nemo in 19.04 had one unfortunate consequences. The 18.10 version of Nautilus had a bulk file rename very nicely implemented and saves a lot of work when importing photos to be named or file structures a user wants to create with a logical naming structure. Fortunately, it is possible to install Nautilus from the Bungie Software Center and it coexists nicely with Nemo, bringing with its bulk name file rename. Nemo, which comes from Mint, is supposed to be extendable to do bulk renaming, but my searches for how to implement it turned up nothing useful. Prior to discovering bulk renaming in Nautilus, I had installed KDE's KRename, and it works great, just some extra steps. Pop OS. I tried GNOME in Ubuntu 18.10. GNOME tweaks used to include the ability to stop windows that reach top or corners from blooming out and taking half the screen. Since I work on large monitors, I have plenty of screen real estate, and even on my laptop find the pop this window has just expanded behavior very annoying. I like the new feature in Pop! OS that allows non-destructive reinstall repair of a broken Linux. How about a report on how it works in real life? Bill, you should have plenty of experience. Okay. Folks who regularly futz up their system will undoubtedly appreciate the new refresh install options that's been added to the recovery partition, though this is only included on new installs. Using this rescue method, you can reinstall Pop! OS without losing any data in your home directory or any users you've added to the system. Does Pop! OS version of GNOME Enable blocking of the window popping behavior. I think the official name for it is automatic tiling. Dropbox. Haven't used Dropbox in forever. Should probably clear out what's in mine. Stopped using the Dropbox sync folder years ago and relied on the web interface. Currently using Synology's at work and home, the, they, those come with Synology Drive that does include a local sync folder that's handy, and I don't need to worry if I accidentally drop a sensitive unencrypted file into the sync queue as it's encrypted when transmitted and only accessible by me. Sort of the same feature set that uh, there's send firefox.com up to 2.5 gigabytes of encryption encrypted transfer 
optional extra security by adding user password. I scanned the info about the service on GitHub, and while I'm hardly a cryptologist, I, it seemed like they were doing all the right things. Works on any browser, browser, not just Firefox, and enables multiple separate downloads with links good for seven days. As always, enjoy your efforts on behalf of all of us. George. Okay. Hmm. Yeah, George, thanks for all of those helpful uh, suggestions. Um, interesting stuff. I'm going to put, I hadn't put, a link. Let's see. Um, send.firefox.com. That's a new syncing service, or new to me, syncing service. Yeah. I hadn't heard of that one before, didn't know it existed, probably because I don't really use Firefox and haven't seen it. But uh looks pretty simple to set up. Drag and drop files onto the website, and you're in. So hmm. you can sign in or sign up right there on the main page, and interesting. All right, William commented on episode 367, and Zorin. Hi, guys, long-time listener. In Listener Feedback, episode 367, you talked a bit about the Zorin release of Linux. I wanted to put in my two cents worth. First, everything you said was true, but there is a case for using Zorin. First, let me explain. I was a reasonably happy Windows XP user. I had heard of Linux from a couple of different people, and then my fiancé even had a now-forgotten version of Ubuntu on her computer that a friend had given her. She barely knew what to do with it. I have to admit it looked unfamiliar to me, and I really didn't try to figure it out. Instead, we just did everything on my XP desktop. As I said, it did everything I needed, and I was happy with it. Then, of course, Windows XP reached end of support. Another thing to know about me is that I'm fairly handy, and I'm a cheapskate. <laughs> I was not about to spend money on a new version of Windows that was also starting to look temporary. Also, it looked a lot like I was going to have to upgrade my hardware to even do that. I was using a perfectly good HP Compact desktop computer and an older Dell laptop that worked perfectly fine. It went against everything to scrap perfectly good hardware just so someone else could make money. I looked at Linux again. Linux Mint came to the rescue. It worked just fine on both my computers, did everything I needed. I even set up the old desktop to dual boot XP and Mint. I forget which Mint version was current at the time. I was using a couple of programs that I could only get to run on XP then, so the dual boot took care of it. Since then, I got more confident with Wine and Play on Linux, and I rarely even boot the XP. For the rare occasion that I do need Windows, I still have the old dual boot, and I even have XP and Vista instances on VirtualBox on the laptop. But what about Zorin? Well, I have several laptops I've picked up here and there, and all run some form of Linux. My wife and I do woodworking and art, among other things. I was setting up an old Dell Latitude D600 for occasional use in the shop. That is not a place where you want to set up your good laptop. At the time, this was several years ago, many of the flavors of Linux I tried would not recognize the wireless card in the D600, at least without a lot of extra work. 
I tried every version I could find, and nothing worked. This is, after all, a 2003 computer and pretty light specs for these days. I finally tried Zorin OS 9 in the free light version, and it immediately worked with no hiccups. It did everything I needed flawlessly and was acceptably fast on the D600. Admittedly, it pulled light duty, but I kept it on for many years with no problems. The free version was just fine. Cheapskate, remember? I also found <laughs> more recently that Linux Lite works also, and I went ahead and went to that for no real reason other than trying something new, and it seemed to run a tiny bit faster. As I said, I'm handy, and I enjoy tinkering with things and making them work. My wife, on the other hand, just wants to open up her laptop and have it do the stuff she wants with no fuss. Her laptop is currently a Dell Latitude E5400, a 2009-era laptop that came with Vista. Same thing. Worked fine. No reason to change, but then Vista ended support. I had no qualms about installing Zoran OS 9 Lite on hers. She barely noticed the difference. Still works just fine with no drama or issue. As I said, your points were all valid and correct. Zorin really doesn't do much that you can't do with other versions of Linux. However, it is a valid tool under some circumstances, and occasionally it may be the only one for a particular bit of hardware. I also ran across something on a different topic just a day ago. My current main machine is a Dell Inspiron 1720 laptop. It works fine, and it lives on my desk at home. I was using Mint 17.3, and it worked very good. As I was planning to go upgrade my hard drive from 750 gigabytes to 1 terabyte, I decided also to make the shift to Mint 19.1. It seemed easy enough. Remove the old drive, install the new one, install Mint 19.1, then copy necessary data from the old drive using the USB SATA link I have. The first part went fine. When it came to copying data from the old drive, it would not mount. This drive had just been working perfectly. I tried a couple of different drive checking programs and none could access it. Basically, I was getting cannot mount and unknown partition type messages. I cannot figure out why suddenly this drive did not work. I even tried reinstalling it into the laptop and nothing worked. Fortunately, I had a recent backup, so I didn't lose much of anything. However, it's a puzzle and inconvenient. I've swapped drive and recovered files with little problem many times before. This is the first time for this thing. Thanks for listening. All the best, William. Okay, William, thanks for the review of Zoran OS and your journey to moving to Linux. This could have gone into a gone Linux section, but uh, yeah, it's uh, your question is kind of what puts it into the listener feedback category. And that is what happened. Why, you know, when you upgraded to Mint 19.1 or, or installed from scratch Mint 19.1, why wouldn't it mount the old drive? And I'm not sure. I've had that happen on occasion. And because I have multiple copies of things, I just copy the file from another backup, as you did, and uh, just didn't worry about it. One thing I have found useful is mounting the drive as administrator, uh, but then again, you have to get it to mount first. And I think that was your problem. And I don't know if anyone, Bill, do you have, before we turn this over to our minions, do you have any thoughts on how to get it to mount when it 
was mounting fine under the previous operating system and now it doesn't? No. <laughs> I'm sitting okay. here listening to it and uh, uh, I don't know why. Could it be? No, I don't know. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. I I have no idea. Uh, and I didn't take the time to figure it out when it happened to me. I just did what you did. So it may remain a mystery if everybody does that. But if any of our going Linux minions knows what uh, is going on here, please let us know. And yeah. let's let William know as well. I, I like William. He's a, uh, he uses hardware until they just can't <laughs> work yeah, anymore. Exactly. I mean, that, and like I said, that's a, that's a great, uh, that's a great way to keep recycling old computers. Our next email comes from Highlander, who wrote us and copied the Mintcast. Dear Bill and Larry, all of the security add-ons that I like to use in Firefox from within the GNU Linux system have been shut down while I was accessing my personal email and then later when I was watching the news. I'm not happy with this development. It looks and feels as if there is some form of attack against all Linux users. Can you investigate and find out what's going on? Uh, platforms affected are Ubuntu 18.04.01, Linux Mint 19, Fedora 29, currently running Firefox 66.0.3. And he says the add-ons affected are Avia, uh, Browser Safety, HTTPS Everywhere, NoScript, Privacy Badger, uBlock Origin. Thanks, guys. Highlander. Leo from the Mintcast responded, Hey, Highlander, Bill, Larry. Wasn't copied on any responses, so please forgive me for the uh, wide reply. Highlander, the issue is currently being worked on by Firefox, and you probably already have the in, in, uh, initial fix. It's a certificate issue that affects most, if not all, add-ons in Firefox, preventing them from functioning. There are some temporary workarounds, but aren't recommended. Firefox advice is to sit tight if you aren't already fixed up. Go check. This will be permanently fixed in a future update. I heard about this. It was a um, uh, certificate issue. So apparently... Uh, their certificate that no one found out that was getting ready to expire and expired and then Firefox broke. But uh, they have fixed it apparently and uh, so it happened over the weekend from what I understand. So apparently it's um, it's fixed or probably it's already – I know it's fixed by the time you hear this. So yeah, it was an attack on Linux. I mean Windows users and uh, anybody running it um, – was affected that had those add-ons. All right. And our next email is from Ghetto Geek, uh, who offers a solution for Michael regarding Ubuntu on an SSD. And he's referring to the listener feedback episode 367, where at timestamp 1433, uh, Michael talks about Ubuntu on SSD. I have a solution for Michael's HP laptop storage. If, as I suspect, if Michael has a DVD drive on his laptop and doesn't use it, as most users currently don't, other than to watch a movie every once in a while, he can convert that drive to a 2.5-inch hard drive caddy. I'm aware that he doesn't live in the USA, but they're everywhere and inexpensive. Install this SSD 
for his Linux distro and a mechanical hard drive in that caddy. And we have a link to that listing on Amazon in case you're interested. Hope that helps. Ghetto Geek, West District GEO, Geek Executive Officer, Detroit Branch. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Ghetto Geek. <laughs> <laughs> A geek executive officer, Detroit Plants. That's awesome. Uh, Nick wrote us about, about problems with LibreOffice. He says, hi team, I have a problem with LibreOffice 5 in Linux Mint 18.2. No spell check. Reinstalled from Software Manager and there was no help. Just found your great show based in the UK. Many thanks. Best regards, Nick. Um, no spell check. Huh. Yeah, uh... Now, I have Lib- I have LibreOffice right here. Let me see something real quick. I wonder if he installed the full uh, Office. I know they have, a, like, a stripped-down version. Let's see, LibreOffice 5. Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking as well. Maybe there was a different version in the Mint repositories in 18.2? Yeah. I don't know. And um, I'm just looking here. Um... I'm just trying to misspell something, and huh. So go here to tools, and it says word count and spelling. It says, okay, hmm. It comes up, and it, you know, of course, it doesn't seem to find anything I wrote in it. I didn't notice that. Maybe you have to enable it. Well, uh, well, okay. It says F7, function 7. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. And um, let's see if uh, let's see if it, okay. So I I misspelled my name. I used to used to find out because I always misspell my name. Uh, the last one I had N said M. So I go up here to spelling grammar, and it says it doesn't see anything. Huh. I don't know. Might be a huh. bug. I, I don't know. Hang on a second. I'm going to try the same thing. So, um, autocorrect while typing is on. And spelling, if I go to F7 for spell check, it shows uh, the word. And so, I'm thinking that you have to run spell check separately. He may be looking for an automatic spell check as you're typing. Sort of mm-hmm. thing, you know, with a wavy line underneath. And if I remember correctly, you need to enable that. Uh, and I don't see where to do that. Oh, there we go. Automatic spell checking. Shift F7. Shift F7, yeah. Yeah, and that puts the wiggly red line under a misspelled word so you can see it. Yep. It. Okay. So you just have to, yeah, it's under the tools menu. And on my version, 6.2 point something of of LibreOffice Writer, it shows up um, as okay. a second, second list. Yeah, of mine does too spelling. now too. Yeah. So yeah, shift F7 and see if that works for you. Yep, there you go, Nick. Okay, our uh, next email is from Scott who wrote, I have an HP 8560P laptop. I'm running Linux Mint 18.2 KDE on a KingWin USB 3.0 Easy Dock docking station. Model EZD2535U3 with UASP support. I'm not sure what that is. The SSD drive is a crucial MX500, 500 gigabyte, 
Tried running trim commands, but it doesn't work. Confirmed trim is supported with sudo hdparm-i slash dev slash sdb, and then grepping that to look for trim supported. It says data set management trim supported, eight blocks. Then I ran uh, another command, and it says discard option is not supported. Then I did the following. To try to verify trim support, I ran lsblk dash dash discard and check the values of the discard granularity and the discard maximum bytes columns. Non-zero values indicate trim support. All the values were zero. That says trim is not supported. When I run fs trim dash dash all, I don't get any return code. And he lists the return codes and what they're supposed to be. Um, I read trim is a SATA command and not supported on USB uh, on the Ubuntu forum. Even if the SSD reports that trim is supported, and even if the enclosure supports UASP, I don't think there are any USB bridge controllers that support uh, SCSI slash ATA translation pass-through, which would need to pass the trim command. You cannot trim USB SSD drives. You need to leave garbage collection to the drives themselves. To run trim on those drives, you'd need a SATA connection. But what I also found out is the controller on your motherboard actually has to support UASP as well. I asked HP on their website through live chat if my computer has UASP. They couldn't answer me. I looked at the user manual and reference guide for my computer, and they didn't find anything that said UASP. I have an eSATA port on my computer. If I connected the SSD drive with eSATA to SATA adapter cable, will trim work? If it does work, will the SSD be slower on eSATA than on USB 3.0? If trim does work on the eSATA port, what should I do to have trim run automatically? I don't want my SSD life cut short because I can't use trim. Is active garbage collection built into the SSD good enough? How long will the SSD last without trim? According to the crucial website, trim also affects the longevity of the solid state drive. If data is written and erased from the same NAND cells at the same time, those cells will lose integrity. For optimum life, each cell should be utilized at roughly the same rate as other cells. This is called wear leveling. The trim command tells the SSD which cells can be erased during the idle time, which also allows the drive to organize the remaining data-filled cells and the empty cells to write to avoid unnecessary erasing and rewriting. Trim is a useful tool. It can benefit the speed and longevity of your drive. But if your operating system doesn't support trim, it's not a disaster. All of the crucial SSDs are designed and tested, assuming that they would be used without trim. Thank you. That in a very technical way describes a little bit about trim uh, from Scott's experience and the research that he's done. So thanks for that, Scott. Looks like can't do the trim command on an SSD over USB, and it needs a SATA connection to do that. I knew that some SSDs, particularly the more recent SSDs, probably have 
a lifespan, even with the level of writes and rewrites um, that are are current in computers, they have a lifespan that typically is much greater than they were when SSDs were first brought out, and it's not so much of a problem as it has been in the past. And his research from the Crucial website kind of indicates why that might be, that uh, uh, at least in the Crucial drives, they've built that in so that if you're using an SSD without trim, no problem. That was in-depth. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he okay. did a lot of research there. Thanks. Yeah, so. he did a lot of research. I was just reading through it again. I just he he went all out. That's impressive. Good work, Scott. Our next email comes from Heath from uh, Australia, uh, who commented on episode three sixty seven, and he writes, "Larry and Bull." Hmm. Okay. <laughs> you played a voice message from Paul, who had some scanner driver issues. He commented that he thought it was odd that the scanner worked in Mint 18.3, but not in 19.1. Looking at the forum thread he shared, the fix is to make a link to the library. The location and or the version looks to have changed, and the fix is to make a link with the old version name to the library with the newer version name. If the library version is hard-coded in the reference inside the driver, it will not recognize the new version as a valid library to use. I have ha also had issues in the past where libraries were missing due to being depreciated and removed from the distribution. The these had to be located on GitHub or SourceForward and manually installed. Hope this helps. Heath. Thanks, Heath. So... Yeah. So, yeah. If it, uh, yeah, I can see what he's saying. If they, if it was changed in the driver, yeah. But it probably. What do you think it would be? I don't think it would. He just probably needs to just point it to the directory, right? I mean, to, yeah, to the library. Excuse me. Uh, if the, he says if the library version is hard coded in the reference inside the driver, it will not recognize the new version. And unless you're a programmer who knows how to write drivers, I don't know how you would repoint it. Um, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I don't see why they would modify the driver to point to a different library unless they changed the file structure from 18.3 to 1901. Oh, that's possible. It just is yeah. in a different location. I can't find it, and they forgot to update the, yeah. the driver. Yeah, so... so. Okay. Yeah, they might be able to just repoint it or it might, you know, but, uh, yeah. And maybe that's what downloading the latest version off of GitHub accomplishes. <laughs> so if you find a solution to that, let us know. That'd be interesting. Yep. That's an interesting one. There you go. All right. Uh, Highlander wrote us again about offline backups. Regardless of whether you are using Windows or Linux, everyone should create offline backups of your most critical data. Here's why. And he has a link to an article from CNN on ransomware attacks on U.S. cities. Uh, he says, fixed media might be your best choice for data you think is critical or irreplaceable. Okay, so uh, yep. we'll include that link in the show notes. Our uh, next email comes from Scott, who provided a mouse tip that, that works with Linux. Hello, Larry and Bill. First off, 
I want to say how much I enjoy listening to your podcast. I find it very positive and informative. So I asked you guys a few years ago about a computer mouse that I can use uh, the programmable buttons. I like to have one button for control W and another one for spacebar so I can quickly scroll through multiple tabs. I haven't had much luck until recently. I found that gaming mice can sometimes store the programs in the, the mouse itself versus in the driver on the computer. So I first started with a Corsair Saber that did not work very good and I quickly gave up on that. Then I tried the Razer Death Adler Elite. I liked this mouse but had problems with that also. I then gave it one last try and got a Logitech G502 Protus Supreme Gaming Mouse. This was very easy to set up and it gives you the option to store the information on the device or computer. So the trick is to start in Windows the first time, install the Logitech software and program the buttons how you like. From there, you can switch to Linux and the buttons will retain their settings. The only downside is that you have to switch to Windows if you want to make changes, but that isn't a big deal to me. I learned after the fact that you you want to look for a gaming mouse that has onboard memory so others may work. I hope this will help other listeners keep up the good work. Thank you. That's interesting. So he tried a Corsair because I have a Corsair mouse too but uh, or, mm -hmm. or, or i have i have a, also have one i can't remember what it's called i think it's a specter or whatever but it has programmable buttons but uh i don't i don't i had to look see if you can store it that would be kind of cool to be able to do that on my mouse i had to look into yeah that. yeah there's all kinds of utilities for for mouses or mices or mice or whatever you want to call them you, you, uh, you know what yeah. this is going to mean scott's gone they have now given me a uh a challenge to see if I can get mine to work. Thanks, Scott. Yeah. Like I don't have enough to do. <laughs> so there you go. Thanks, Scott. Yeah. Thanks, Scott. And speaking of utilities and things like that, uh, I have an application pick. And so do I. All right. Well, mine is a program called Barrier. And uh, this program eliminates the barrier between two computers for your mouse and keyboard. Uh, and... You may recall, if you've been a listener to the Going Linux podcast for a while, that and uh, or a reader of our website, that I have uh, described a program called Synergy as my favorite utility program ever, because it allows you to use one keyboard and mouse across multiple computers, whether the computer is Linux, Mac, or Windows. Haven't come across any version for Chrome or anything like that yet. But for the three most popular operating systems out there, uh, it allows you without anything other than the software running to be able to use a single mouse and keyboard from one of the computers to copy text from one computer to the other, copy other things back and forth, and run the mouse from one computer's screen to the other, like from a Linux screen over to a Mac screen, uh, and then over to a, uh, a Windows screen. So you can have a multi-monitor situation 
that actually uses multiple computers. Well, Synergy does that, and I've been using it for a long time. It started life as an open source project, and a couple of years ago, they made it proprietary. I did purchase a license for Synergy. I liked it that much. However, in the intervening years, the project called Barrier, B-A-R-R-I-E-R, forked the last version of Synergy before it became proprietary and have just recently built it to the point where it's completely functional for Windows, Mac, and Linux, and it works identically to the way that Synergy did before it became proprietary. So there are a few features that the Synergy folks have added that Barrier doesn't have, but it was completely functional for everything that I wanted it to do, including SSL encryption and things like that. Uh, and so Barrier is now available in a number of different repositories, including the Ubuntu repository. And I'm now, I think, going to be recommending that going forward. Nothing wrong with Synergy if you are an, an open source enthusiast and prefer to use open source over proprietary software, then Barrier might just be for you. So you use Barrier. You like it? I'm use yes, I've been using it for almost a month now and it works just fine. Huh. Okay, well you picked the boring uh work one. I, I picked yep. the fun one. <laughs> okay. Mine's called mine's called Make Human. And it's and it's M A K E H U M A N all together. And you can find it in your repositories. And Make Human is a completely free, innovative, and professional software for the modeling of 3D dimensional humanoid characters. Hmm. So I uh, uh, found it when I was uh, – it was in the app store of the of Deepin, and, um, and I also made sure it was in the repositories. You know, It wasn't something they just added, and it, and it truly is in the repositories. And I was looking, and I started playing with it, and I lost like two hours playing with all the settings and stuff, and <laughs> up and down, and it was really fun. Um, so if anybody you know just wants to, you know, spend hours just customizing, I mean, they got it every little bit, how they stand, how they walk, the skin texture, I mean, it just goes on and on. And I believe there's also uh, some. Um, uh, add-ons that you can get from the um, website, and I include a link in the show notes that you know has different clothing types and stuff. So you can really do some amazing stuff. You should go to their site. I believe it's um, the website uh, uh, is it's it's www.makehumancommunity.org. They just added the community not too long ago, so it used to be just makehuman.org, but Apparently, now it's makehumancommunity.org. But they go there and they have tutorials. Uh, they have uh, how-tos. Uh, it's open source. You can download it, play with it, uh, and create with it. And there apparently there's ways that you can import that some of that stuff into Blender. And so if you're looking for something like that, I can highly recommend it. If nothing else, just for the entertainment value. Okay. Sounds very interesting, <laughs> if that's what you want to do. See, that's the difference. Larry uses his to mostly for work, and I use mine for mostly for play. So, 
I do work on mine. I I have to kill imaginary things on imaginary planets once in a while. Yeah, and I'm sure that's a lot of work. Yeah. It is a lot of work. See, we (laughs) think alike. There you go. Well, thanks for that, Bill. Yeah. So a work suggestion and a uh, play suggestion. So that's cool. Well, you can also – well, you could use Make Human to Work if you were like making a a video or something. True. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Very true. All right. Uh, that will wrap it up for this episode, Bill. Our next episode will be the next in our series of Run Your Business on Linux episodes. Until then, you can go to our website at goinglinux.com for articles and show notes, as well as links to download and subscribe. We are the website for computer users who just want to use Linux to get things done. And if you'd like, you can participate directly with our friendly and helpful community members by joining the discussion in our Going Linux podcast community at community.goinglinux.com. Until next time, thanks for listening. 73. Music provided by Mark Blasco at podcastthemes.com.